I want you to think back uh, to the moment uh, in your life. And maybe, I, I think this is true for everybody in the room. I, maybe it's not true for everybody in the room. But for the moment where you moved out of your uh, parents' house or, or grandparents' house or caretaker's house growing up, I want you to imagine like that day when you moved out and you left for the first time. For some of you, that maybe happened way too early in life. And you, you like that was a, a scary thing. But for most people, it was probably a, a pretty surreal moment. <laughs> I remember uh, going to my, uh, moving out of my house, I think I was 18 or maybe just turned 19 years old. And I remember my dad dropped me off because I didn't have a car and he drove off. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm free. I mean, I love my parents. <laughs> they were great people. They, they are great people. Still alive. Not, they, haven't, they didn't die once I, they dropped me off. Um, but it was an amazing moment to think of myself like, I can do in this moment whatever I want. And they have no idea what I'm doing. Something changed in my life in that moment, right? And this is before, cell, well, I guess a few people had cell phones. Almost nobody had cell phones. So they couldn't track me. They couldn't call me unless they called my room number, right? My apartment number. There was no way to contact me. Something had changed. This happens in our lives, like where our whole reality shifts in like a significant way. If you were to happen to get married, like you wake up after getting married and you're like, this is a new reality, right? Like I'm committed to somebody for my whole life. And this is the person. And they snored last night, you know, or drooled on their pillow or whatever it is, right? This is different. I remember the first day that we uh, had maize as part of our family. Whew, that was a unique thing. I woke up like six times in the night to a kid crying. I think, well, my life has changed forever. The New Testament is abundantly clear. That when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, something dramatically shifts in us. And I think that that's hard for us because we don't always feel that way. But I think for those of us that became Christians later in life, uh, maybe there was a more pronounced understanding of this. Like if you were 16 or 20 or 30 or 50 or whenever you came to follow Jesus, something, uh, it, it can sometimes be a pretty dramatic event and moment in your life. But something does change. In 2 Corinthians 5, it speaks a little bit to this new reality that we experience in our lives when we become Christians. It says this in verse 15 through 17. Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view at what time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone, a new life has begun. This passage is essentially saying when you trust in Jesus, you become a new person. The, old, the New Testament version that I grew up is that you are a new creation. You have a new reality. You were born again. Maybe it's another way that the Bible speaks to this reality of becoming something new. This new something has changed in us. And so I just want to give a, a brief outline of what the New Testament says has changed in you. Like this is your identity now that you are in Jesus Christ. One, uh, you are free, it says, liberated from the power of sin and death. 
liberated from the power of sin and death. That's a big one. It says you are adopted into God's family. Adopted into the family of God. You are a son or you are a daughter. It says you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All things are yours. Nothing to prove, nothing to earn. It's all yours. You're in the will. You're not going to be written out. Another place it calls, it doesn't call us just as individuals, but as a, a corporate community, the bride of Christ, which means that Christ has chosen us, that Christ has covenantly committed to us. He's saying, I want you. For those of you that are married, um, I think we do this with God a lot. We, we kind of question God's love for us. Like, imagine if you're married, if your spouse would constantly say, but do you really love me? Like every day they just said, but I know that like you've committed your life to me, <laughs> right? I know that like, but do you really care about me? I don't know about you, but I would, that would get old, right? I have committed to be married to you for the rest of my life. Yes, I love you. I delight in you. And that's what God is saying to us, the bride of Christ talks about us being at peace with God. Sin has been taken care of. We have been reconciled to God. Another uh, place in the New Testament says, we are citizens of heaven. This means you can't be deported. <laughs> uh, I've shared this story before, but a lot of you are newer to our church. So, My son Mays and Sandy, my daughter, are both adopted, and they're Ethiopian and uh, what's pretty cool uh, is that when you adopt them into your family, um, the second that you land on the plane in the United States, they're instantly citizens. Isn't that cool? Like the second the plane lands, American citizen. And you get off the plane and you're literally handed, like you hand over and you become an American citizen because they're part of the family. They become citizens of uh, of, of, of the United States because of what you have to offer as American citizens, as parents, right? And it says that we are citizens of heaven. So when we trust in Jesus, we become citizens of heaven. I always think about how scary and horrible it would be uh, to be in constant fear of being kicked out. You know, like being an, an, an illegal immigrant or someone that came here that like how scary that would be. Every day you don't know what's going to happen next. In Christ, we no longer have to be afraid because we are citizens of heaven. We have an inheritance that will never be taken from us. We are co-heirs with Christ. And so the resurrection life, when we speak of resurrection life, is living from this blessing, living uh, from this new identity, not for blessing. We're not trying to earn all these things. These things are already being given to us in Christ. Paul, I think, lived from blessing and not for blessing in profound ways. So today, I want to give four practical ways that we experience resurrection, or, or maybe you could say we become new people. Four ways that we become new people. 
There's more than these four, but I, I want to talk about these four today, okay? So this is not like an end-all, be-all. I had, uh, I'll be honest, I had six pages of notes, so you guys are lucky. I cut it down to like two and a half. So I did a really good job today. So these are the four that I wanted to talk about because I think that they have something significant to say to us today. The first thing I believe is that we, as resurrection people, as new people, we begin to have a new disposition. Growing up in church, uh, so much of the time spent from the pulpit was talked, we talked about the cross. And we, we talked, and I think that's, that's good. Like this is the climax of human history, Christ dying for our sins. We are in need of a Savior. Every single one of us needs the forgiveness provided at the cross. Yet the New Testament is also filled with proclamations that the Spirit of God dwells in you and something happens when we trust in Jesus, right? And so this Spirit gives us a new disposition towards people in the way that we think and the way that we act and I think the priority that we give to others and to God. Acts 16 is a good example of this. In Acts 16, uh, the disciples uh, heal uh, a girl with an evil spirit. You guys remember this story? Anybody? So she has the ability to essentially predict the future. And her master, she's a slave, bring her around and take her around and get money for her prediction, predicting the future for people. And so she's a, a, a way for these people to, to make a significant amount of money. And she starts following around and saying, you know, like the, proclaiming that, that, that these men are, are followers of the one true God, the son of the most high God, right? Talking about Jesus being the Messiah. And so uh, they finally, after a couple of days, decide, well, they cast this evil spirit out of this young girl. And as you can imagine, her masters are very unhappy. They lost their moneymaker. Not only that, but in that context, this woman probably would have been tossed to the side and disregarded. And so the apostles had to make a decision in that moment to take ownership, as many commentators would say, for this woman for the rest of her life. <laughs> The owners didn't want, wouldn't want her anymore. These men faced slander. They, they were called false things. They were said false things about them. They were put in prison for their action. They probably had to take on the responsibility for this girl now that is no longer valuable to their owner. I mean, all these things took place because of this one action. And in that moment, they chose this person, this girl, over their, their own reputation. I think that if we're going to be followers of, of Christ and we have this new disposition, this, the Holy Spirit inside of us, we no longer have this obsession with protecting our reputation. We're going to do whatever God wants us to do regardless of the situation. My fear is that if I were to counter this girl today, instead of trying to heal her, I would walk away condemning her behavior and fail to be with her in her greatest need. 
I mean, I would make a moral judgment upon her for having an evil spirit or for being out of her mind or for having all these things instead of seeing her the way that the apostles did and to give her the life and the healing that only God can give. And I just think it's important that when we, we come to Christ, there's this reality where we start to, to, to see a, like this higher morality that puts the will of God to be with people in their greatest need of, ahead of the desire to be right or wrong or, or save our reputation. The second thing I think that this does, and this is always gets people nervous when you start saying this, but I think that you, 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 the new disposition is all about people. And so it's, it's putting people above your own reputation, but people over your own safety even. There's a greater disposition towards risk because we know who we are and where we're going and what the ultimate end is. I think that we put people over freedom in this new disposition. I love the, the passage that follows us. Paul and Silas are in prison. And uh, if you remember, there's a big earthquake. And it shakes the doors loose and they could easily have escaped. And they decide instead of, of, of leaving to stay in the jail a little longer. And the, the reason was is because God is using me here. <laughs> right? We're going to stay here a little bit longer because we don't want the, the, the jailer to get in trouble. Who decides to stay in prison longer because they're being used at? Like, nobody says that, right? Sometimes we miss, like, what's happening in the Bible. How radical this is. Paul and Silas are wrongfully imprisoned. They healed this woman for, and, and saved her life and freed her from, from slavery for all intents and purposes. They're being slandered and mistreated and thrown into prison. And God essentially provides a way out for them. And they say, well... I don't know, we're being used here. Like, I think that we can make an impact if we just stay a little bit longer in prison. They cho chose people over their own freedom. I think there are so many practical ways that we could think about this. But this is like one small example. Is I was taught my whole life uh, when I vote. Okay, now everyone's going to get nervous. I'm start talking about voting. <laughs> when I vote is to... Choose the candidate and choose the platform and choose the issues that will benefit my life the most. This is like how you are taught to vote, right? Well, I think that a new disposition, this new reality of having the Holy Spirit is that you would start to vote and consider how you might choose things that would not benefit you most personally, but best for other people. I mean, this is just like the most basic way that we could start to have a new disposition because of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, this is like a really practical way. This is going to hurt some feelings. I own a, a property in Uptown, so I'm saying this as an actual homeowner here in Uptown, okay? We should choose, choose the good for other people over our own property values, okay? That shouldn't be that controversial, as a Christian, but I think it is, right? This is what happens when we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, is we choose what's better for others instead of ourselves. So a new disposition is the first one. The second one is, is a new power. A new power. After Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Acts 1.8. When we think of power, uh, I think we often think of it as authority over people. 
right? Like we think of power as like this control over others. Or we think of power as, oh, now we have access to God. He's kind of like a, a genie, you know? Like we, have, like we have so many wishes that we can ask of him or whatever we say is going to come true because of our new relationship with, with God. Or maybe it's um, the power to get what you want. You believe this new power would be. That's when we, what we think of when we think of power. But primarily in the New Testament, we think of power in regards to resisting sin. The power to heal or the, the, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit may be a better way, a more broader way to say it. And I believe the power to be courageous. So today I'm not going to cover the power, the power uh, like the, the spiritual gifts or the power to heal or some of those other aspects of what this power of the Holy Spirit would mean. I'm just going to talk about the first two things, resisting sin and being courageous. One thing that helped me as I was growing up in my faith is that um, I realized that my battle is not just against my own desires and my own wants. Like I have, um, a, a, the Bible talks about our flesh, right? And how we, it's, it's sinful. And that is true. Uh, and the resurrection gives us power over our flesh for the first time to pursue goodness and righteousness and good things. But the Bible also describes that we're having a, a much bigger battle than just with our own self. This battle is not between my flesh alone, but there is an ongoing battle for my heart and my affections and things that I want. It's a battle for my heart. It's a battle for your heart every single day. You're facing this battle between Good and evil, light and darkness. But what has changed in our position because of Christ is that we are living in the same state that Jesus was while he was on earth. That the Spirit of God dwells in us. Remember when Jesus, uh, you know, the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove, right? So we still feel the uh, effects of sin in a different way than Jesus did, although he experienced the effects of sin too. But our position is secure and our power over sin is definite. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that you do not have to go on sinning. That is your current state. Now, I'm not arguing for a perfection uh, ethic here. or the, 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 I'm just saying that you have power over sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not have to continue to do the things that have caused us problems for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. This is no longer at the core who you are. Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit, went about, and what did he do? He destroyed the works of the devil. And so when we think about this new power, it's not just the power to resist sin, but it's the power to destroy evil, to, be at, to fight against the principalities of darkness in our world that's beyond just our own selves and, 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 and like into the larger society. And Jesus fought this battle with the same power that you and I have if you're a Christian. He's not using some resource that you didn't have to resist sin and to fight against the evil one. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You have been given everything you, you need for life and godliness. The second aspect of this new power, 
I believe is courage that I want to talk about today. I love uh, in Acts when the authorities uh, are talking about these apostles. <laughs> and this is what they said at one point. They were astonished that these unlearned fishermen could speak with such authority. When the Spirit of God fills us and begins to change us from the inside out, I believe God gives us a real courage to follow him and speak for him. And there's something that really needs to be nuanced here because there's pretend courage and real courage. I think we have a lot of Christians that shout really loud about things that they think matter to Jesus that often don't. <laughs> or they shout really loud about things that matter to Jesus um, that they're just being jerks. Or uh, they shout really loud about things they think about Jesus because they desire distinction. Because they, just, they want to set themselves up in a certain way to look up and per, be perceived a certain way. And you can kind of tell when someone has real courage is that they're not just speaking against their foes, they're speaking about the people that, they, that, that typically they agree with with things. And they're willing to call out not just the bad stuff over there in that tribe, but what's the problem happening here within me and within us. Christian courage is willing to say and do the right things regardless of the, of the cost. And courage doesn't always have to be loud either. It can be gentle and compassionate as you walk along someone helping them see a different path forward. You won't be bold for Jesus, I'll say this, unless you've been with Jesus. We have Jesus abiding in us and exploding out of us. When we are with Christ, we become more courageous to speak and share the good news, to speak truth to power, to be courageous people. I just am astonished by how these disciples, within the matter of weeks, went from being cowards to having incredible courage. The third thing, and this is going to be a shorter one, is praise, new praise. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 says this, Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that a reality of the, this resurrection life is you, uh, you have this bent on praise, this bent on worship, and a new, a new uh, center for your worship is maybe a way to say it. You become worshipers of a new thing. When we are in Christ, uh, we can't help but sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making music to the Lord in our hearts. We can't help but bring, bring praise and, and praise God for all that he's doing in our lives. Our worship goes from whatever we were worshiping before to this new reality of Christ being all and in all. So the third thing is this new praise. And the fourth thing I want to say today is a new joy. A new joy. 
Jesus was speaking about his death in John 16, verses 20 and 22. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Well, maybe a little bit, right? (laughs) For joy that a human being has been born into the world. For For the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I think that there is a sense where joy uh, in life and about life, mainly about Christ, right, is, is, is an essence of being a Christian. It's, it's a very center of who we are. And joy uh, is a delight that results from this enjoyment of the unchanging privileges that we have in God. So everything that we talked about at the beginning, about our privileges of being united with Christ, should give undergird our lives with joy. See, happiness is based on circumstances. Maybe you got a raise at work. That can bring us happiness. Maybe we got to go on a, a nice vacation, visit family and friends. Maybe we had a great dinner with uh, our, our neighbors across the hall. Maybe we're in a new relationship. That gives us happiness. Those are good things. Happiness is good. No one, I'm not wishing for anybody to be unhappy here. But joy is not necessarily predicated on our circumstances. It undergirds our lives. It's this deep-seated satisfaction that we have in Jesus that leads us to delight in him. He says, you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Now, I know that Jesus is speaking about his return, but I do believe that there is a a joy and a delight that Paul and Silas showed us in the previous passage we looked at in Acts, where they're they're singing and they're praising and and they're praying in the midst of hard circumstances. I think joy is an attribute of God himself. And we catch some of God's characteristics when we spend time with him. Um, so one of the things that really drew me to Sarah, she's not here today, so I decided that I didn't have to ask her permission to talk about her, but sorry. But she is her joy. Like she like if you meet Sarah, like she's just a very joyful person. Like I just remember when we met, I mean like, I like hanging out with her. She's she's just like seems like there's something good always going on in her life. And I will be honest, I think she's made me a more joyful person because I just, I get to be around her all the time. I'm kind of a curmudgeon. Like, my fr- I, we had an 18-year-old kid live with us when we lived back in Michigan, and he always called me the fun killer. That was my nickname. <laughs> oh, do you want to play cards? No, I got to study. No, oh, you don't want to do this? No, I just want to hang out, you know, like, and do my own thing. You want to go hang out with everybody? No, I want to stay by myself and do nothing, right? You know, like, that's just kind of how I'm wired. And Sarah's just like, let's go. Let's do it. Let's have fun. They're like, you're the fun killer. She's the joy bringer, right? Like, that's the way it works. So she has made me more joyful. And I think that joy is an attribute of God himself. And so when we spend time with God, 
we will, our lives will be undergirded with this joy and delight that we have and be united with Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit in our future and reality of heaven. What we have looked forward to. I love that uh, when Jesus talk, people always talk about the gospel, right? Like people talk, I, I always like to call it the good news, right? Instead of like the gospel. And the reason I do that is because it's good news. No one knows what the gospel means. But everybody knows what good news is, right? And it brings joy and delight in life. The gospel is good news. Heaven is something that we get to look forward to. The reality that Christ has died for us and taken away our sins and everything that is his is ours now in Christ is a big deal and it should undergird our lives. As the Holy Spirit ministers to us in our lives, it brings joy comfort. And I just want to be clear, and I think Jesus makes this really clear in this passage, but the opposite of joy to me is not sadness. Joy can coexist with sadness and depression and disappointment. I think childbirth in the way that Jesus describes it is a great example, right? I, I have not gone through childbirth, but I can imagine that childbirth is a great example because you are in incredible pain. This is like a very, very, very hard thing. But you have incredible joy as you're bringing this human being into the world. And so I think there is a sense where circumstances, even if you're sad, even if you actually are going through depression, those are legitimate things, and those don't just go away because you're a Christian, right? You're going to go through hard things. You're going to go through depressing moments or times, or your whole life may be filled with chronic depression. But that doesn't mean that you still can't have some joy in Christ. That can't undergird your life in a, in a way that's very profound. So I think the question becomes, as I close here, is why might we not be experiencing resurrection life. When, I, when our kids were young, uh, particularly Maze, he, is, he loves music. And so in order to get him to sleep at night, we always had to like play music or sing to him songs. Like it just like would not fall asleep without it. And we used to sing this song I don't remember, I should remember it by heart <laughs> because we're saying it a, a million times, but it's like, every hour I need you. Like, it's, it's by Matt Mayer. I think it's like, um, I might be saying that wrong, but it's, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. You know, you're, you're my righteousness and all these other things that it goes on to. And I, and I loved that song because it, it really highlights, I think, the way that the early Christians we see in the New Testament is this total reliance upon Christ in their daily lives. This need for God every second of the day, every hour of the day. And, I, and I'm just speaking for myself, and this may be true for you as well, but it is absolutely true for me that I often don't need the power of the Holy Spirit, I don't need the Holy Spirit and the power of God because nothing in my life requires it. The reason that we don't often experience resurrection life is because nothing that we do in our lives requires resurrection life. 
The early Christians' lives were, were filled with a lot of sacrifice. They were filled with um, a lot of risk. They were filled with a lot of hard work and celebration and good things too. But, but God kind of undergirded everything. And I think when we, when we in our lives, um, when, when we're taking risks, when we're uh, pushing the envelope, when we're trying to live for God, the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit fills us. Even though we can't lose the Holy Spirit, we certainly can suppress the Holy Spirit, right? And so often, many of us, we don't experience resurrection life because we are constantly suppressing the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is why Paul can say, just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 6, after we talked about 2 Corinthians 5 earlier, he says, I have nothing, yet I possess everything. What a life. A life dependent upon Jesus every hour. And I just wonder if we might experience more of the life that, that God has promised us, this resurrection life, if our lives begin to require God's power and the Holy Spirit's provision every hour of the day. Part of that's just inviting the Holy Spirit in.